Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Our reading this evening is from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, starting at verse 22. And if you'd like to follow this um, as I read, you'll find it on page 1066 of the Church Bibles. John, chapter 3, starting at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. One who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you very much, Anthony. Please do keep the, uh, the passage open in front of you. And if I may just begin by adding uh, my welcome to that of Will's from earlier. It really is lovely to see you all. Thank you uh, for joining us this evening. And... Uh, you know, there really is a sense, isn't there, that we gather like this because where else can we go? Honestly, really. And the older you get, the more you realize that there really is nowhere else to go because the Lord Jesus has the words of eternal life. So join me as we pray together. Father, we gather this evening and we gather with a deep desire that you would speak to us in your name. Amen. You know, it is a great honor to be a best man at a wedding. And I was asked a number of years ago to be the best man by a friend who was getting married in Wales. And I arranged the, uh, the stag do, and that went fine. Now, it happened to be a really busy time for me at work, so I couldn't get the time off to travel to Wales a day early to get everything ready. So it was a matter of driving to Swansea, 
from London on the, the Saturday morning, on the day of the wedding, let me say, not ideal. And the journey was actually going all okay. We were on time and due to arrive comfortably to allow me to catch up with the groom and make any last-minute preparations with the, other, with the ushers and so forth. It was going all okay, that was, until we pulled over in the service station and I stepped out of the car wearing my trainers and Naomi said to me, where are your shoes? It was one of those moments when immediately I remembered where my shoes were and they were not in the car. Now, it was before the days of mobile phones when you could just Google where the nearest shop was, where you could buy a pair of shoes. And it was just a case of coming off the M4 and heading into Bristol to buy a pair. And then it was foot to the floor. Near me will often say to me, it is the most expensive pair of shoes I've ever bought because we also got a speeding fine. <laughs> Quite. Like all of us, I've seen some very awkward best man failures, but as of yet, I've not seen what I'm sure you would all agree would be the ultimate best man faux pas. See, the ultimate best man faux pas would of course be to decide on the day that you, as the, the best man, decide instead to be the groom. That, I take it, would be an awkward event for everyone. You're losing the ring, insulting the bride's mother, all pretty small fry compared to that. And it's a bizarre, isn't it? An unimaginable situation. But I raise it because that huge potential error is on view in this passage. You see, John the Baptist's disciples are, are just suggesting that the Baptist makes that very move, that he stands in the place of the groom. Now, they do it in ignorance, but it gives John an opportunity to correct them and to underline once and for all before he walks off the scene, to, so to speak, with unmissable clarity that he is not the groom. No, he is the best man. The groom is someone else. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the situation we find there in verse 23 of our chapter is that John the Baptist continues to have enormous crowds coming to him so that they may be baptized by him. And we read that he's gone to Enon because the water was plentiful there and presumably he went there because he needs lots of water to boot to do the baptisms. And we see here that still many people are coming to John, but at the same time Jesus is continuing a parallel ministry of baptism, of baptizing. It's just nearby, and, and John's disciples are jealous by the rival group that had begun to challenge their dominance. You see, in the baptism industry, there's only room for one, they think. So an argument breaks out between the rival groups, and in verse 26, John's disciples say to their boss, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. Look, boss, this Jesus guy is going to drive us out of business if we're not careful. He's going to leave us redundant without any trade or business. They are clearly jealous of Jesus' success. Here before us this evening is an immensely important point in the story of the life of Christ. 
Because if John hadn't dealt with this issue well, there would have been enormous damage and consequences as a result. So we're going to look at how John responds to this evening. And I want us to notice first, the only focus of the believer's life is Jesus. See, if the best man makes a big show at the wedding, you know, he's not doing his job. Yes, of course, he's got to be funny, but it's really not about him, is it? It's about drawing attention to the groom. A number of years ago, at a large Presbyterian church in Melbourne, in Australia, the chairman introduced Hudson Taylor, the founder of China Inland Mission and what is now OMF. And he introduced him as our illustrious friend. And Hudson Taylor stood quietly for a second or two, paused, and then he said, Dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. That's beautiful, isn't it? John the Baptist was a great preacher, a man of extraordinary ability and liveliness and freshness and vitality and energy for the Word of God and the truth of God and the kingdom of God. And many had given their lives to become disciples of John the Baptist. But now some, including Andrew and Simon Peter, his brother, according to John chapter 1, had left following John the Baptist and were instead following Jesus. And so this incident before us this evening only fueled a, a simmering rivalry that John the Baptist's disciples were feeling. And how did John the Baptist deal with it? We see it there in verse 29. The bride belongs to the bridegroom, not to the best man. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. Now you may remember from your knowledge of John's gospel, John the Baptist took a prominent role in the first chapter of the gospel. In verse 19 of chapter 1, he's made such an enormous impact that people have been sent from the religious authorities to check him out and to see who he is. And they interrogate him <clears throat> and try to find out what he's doing. And his message is that Jesus is the Christ. He is the, the long-awaited King of Israel. Not me. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not me. He is the Spirit-filled one who baptizes with the Spirit. You know, I can only splash people with a little bit of water. It's not me. And now John is given this final opportunity to underline once and for all Jesus' identity and his own relationship to Jesus. And John says to his disciples, you have misunderstood. You don't know who he is, do you? He's not a rival. He's on a totally different plane of importance. He is the bridegroom. He is the Lord who has come to bring in new creation. I'm just a friend. I'm the best man. I'm not jealous. No, I'm, I'm overjoyed. It would be mad for me to stand in his place. It's his day. You see, it's now time for me to, to slip away. It's all about him. And so he says there in verse 30 of our chapter, he must become greater. I must become less. He must increase and I must decrease. 
And that, says John, is what is happening right now. And it is completely right. He decreases as the Lord Jesus comes onto the scene and his light shines out into the world. Now, for those of us who are disciples of the Lord Jesus, I think that is a great motto, motto, don't you? He must increase. I must decrease. You know, it is a challenge for us if we are jealous of others. See, anything that we do for the Lord cannot be about ourselves, can it? About raising our own profile within the church. No, we do not serve. We do not volunteer to serve. We do not do that for the affirmation of others. But to bring glory to Christ, surely. And what is it to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus? Surely it is to follow in the very footsteps of John, as it were. It is to to say to ourselves, he must increase and I must decrease. But that, I think, is not actually the main reason this incident is here. It's useful and it's helpful, but I don't think it's the main reason it's here, this particular incident. Now, I want to suggest to you, John the writer reintroduces John the Baptist for another purpose. You see, quite honestly, he could have quite easily gone from Nicodemus in chapter 3, we were looking at him last week, over to the Samaritan woman in the 4, which we'll look at next week. He could have bypassed John the Baptist altogether and, and, and not paid any attention to this historical event. But instead, he, he deliberately chooses to put John the Baptist back into the picture. And he does this just to underline with absolute clarity the identity of Jesus, the Messiah, who has now come to bring new creation. Now, John the Baptist was a man of extraordinary influence in his time. The Lord Jesus said of him that there was no man born of woman in the world of more significance than him in Matthew chapter 11. But although he was very great, he belonged to the old era. He was part of the the passing old age. And the role of the Old Testament prophets was to point to the coming Messiah. They would point to the one who would usher in this new age. And this is exactly what John the Baptist has been doing. Standing, if you like, on on the precipice of this new era. Pointing to the Lord Jesus who would bring in this new, wonderful, new creation. And we've seen something of that, haven't we, in this last few weeks. In in chapter 2, we we saw there something of the fact that Jesus is the new temple. And then last week, that he brings new birth. And as we've been reading these things over these past weeks, it would seem to us that something epoch-changing is happening. But so that we're under no uh, illusions, as it were, as to what is happening, John, the writer, sort of brings out, as it were, the, the ace in the pack, the greatest witness on earth there has ever been, John the Baptist, the, the greatest prophet of all the prophets, to tell us with real certainty who the bridegroom is and what he has come to do. And he does it just before a demonstration in the next chapter of that bridegroom coming to meet that most unlikely of brides. You see, the bridegroom 
And this really is the main point of these uh, chapters that we're looking at together over these six weeks. The bridegroom has come for his bride. He has come for you. And the question for you, for me, for all of us, is what will we do with the bridegroom's proposal? What will we, the people he has come for, do? Will we entrust ourselves to the great bridegroom? Because it does come down to a stark choice, according to John. And did you see there the final line that ends chapter 3 and brings it to a conclusion? John says this, the choice is stark. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the offer, the proposal, the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So we've seen then that the only focus of the believer's life is to be Jesus. It's the point that John wants us to know, but he has a bigger point for us, second. The only hope of the believer's life is Jesus. Now, you may know this story, at least some of you might. It's perhaps one of the most famous sentences that C.S. Lewis ever wrote. And it was the, the third radio broadcast that he gave during the course of the Second World War. And it was called, that episode was called, The Shocking Alternative, and became a chapter in his book, Mere Christianity. And Lewis is talking about people who merely regard Jesus as a great teacher and nothing more. And then, G, and then Lewis goes on to say these words. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg. Or else he will be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. Now you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. And it's over that issue about who Jesus is that an argument has developed between some of John the Baptist's disciples and followers. And it may well be an issue you secretly question. Is Jesus really what he claims to be? And it's with this question in mind that John the writer had called John the Baptist to the witness stand. He now, John the writer, gives us reasons we should trust ourselves to Jesus. And he does so by summarizing the material that he has been writing about in the first three chapters. It's as if John sort of pauses and stops and he's sort of saying to the, to the reader, he's saying, look, this is the question, will you give yourself to Christ? 
Will you respond to his invitation? Let me summarize again the main reasons why you should do that, why you should entrust yourselves to Jesus. And the first reason is because of his heavenly origin. We see that there in verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. See, Jesus comes from heaven. John reminds us and takes us back to the beginning of his gospel, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then extraordinarily, in verse 14 of chapter 1, we read there that the Word became flesh. This bridegroom who has come to offer his marriage is the Lord himself, the Creator, who has come from above. Now this, of course, is the extraordinary uniform plan of the Bible, that the one who flung stars into space at one time in history came down, 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 down into this murky world. One time, the size of an apple seed. Another time, the size of a strawberry. At one time, you could have held the God of the universe in your hand. The eternal broke into time. The one from outside has come inside. Isn't that amazing? And John reminds us of our hopelessness apart from his intervention in that verse 31, which continues, the one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth, speaking of himself. You know, the greatest prophet of our world, the most respected thinker, our favorite preacher or author, a figure of history, a favorite social commentator, that favorite podcast, parents, friends, a boss, all limited, all earth-bound, all of them unable to see beyond the, the natural bounds of this creation. And we are in a world of darkness, says John in his gospel, a world in ignorance from the light. And what we desperately need is the one to come from outside of our universe all the way down to reveal himself to us so that we can know him. Entrust yourselves to this bridegroom, says John the writer, because of his origins. But also second, because Jesus brings the word of God. Look there, verse 34. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. See, as we come to the words of Jesus, when we encounter Jesus, John says, we, we, we come across the unadulterated divine truth that comes direct from the very mouth of God. And the reason is, is because of what we read in verse 32. He testifies, Jesus testifies to what he has seen and heard. He is the son who has been with the father in a relationship of unending, deep, intimate love from eternity. He who speaks to us speaks to us of what he has seen and, and heard in that eternity. He is the eyewitness of the truth and the beauty and the goodness. And that is why when we, when we come to the Bible, the, the words of Jesus, it searches us with such extraordinary accuracy. All my failures, my weaknesses, the true me. Now, why is it when, you know, when I come to this word against any other word, the millions of words that go out every day in this world, why is it that this word speaks to me in this deep and profound way? You see, it's because as I, become, as I come to this word, I encounter a word that comes from God himself. 
These are the words that come from eternity. So his heavenly origin, his words, and John gives us one more reason. Jesus gives life everlasting. Now we talked last week, didn't we, about how we we love the words of Jesus, and we love the Bible, we genuinely do, but we do not gather here principally for the words, for the Bible teaching. No. We come together for life. For life in Christ eternal. For hope beyond the grave. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. You know, the love of the God for the, uh, the love of the God, the, the Father for the Son means that He has entrusted Him with, with universal authority. And that includes the unique authority to give life. He gives out life, eternal life. It's His gift. And we are, says John, it's a theme that runs throughout his gospel, we are in a world in darkness. And light has broken into that darkness and brought us the life that we so desperately need. And the kind of life that he has come to bring is not ordinary life. It is eternal life. It is new creation life that we have been seen breaking into this world in this first few chapters of John's gospel. It's life And life to the full, says John. And I want you to notice extraordinarily here that it is life that starts now. Did you notice that? In verse 36, the tense is present. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. Now it's a reality that belongs to people who have entrusted themselves to the Lord Jesus right now. See, he is the one who has laid down his life in blood and death for the bride. He has absorbed the holy anger and wrath for our sin that we read about so that we don't have to. And it's not only that, that, but he he comes and gives you life. It, It is life at its very best. It's life that no mere human relationship will ever provide. It's far better than that. It provides you with the security and the protection, the meaning and the joy and love and satisfaction that only Christ can offer. You know, like many of us, I began following the Lord Jesus a long time ago. I would have been the age of some of the youth uh, sat here this evening and... uh, You know, I came to church every Sunday. Every Sunday evening, I'd sit with my friends. We had a a place where we would sit, and uh, always in the same place, uh, more or less within sort of two or three rows. And, uh, you know, I already realized uh, that I I was a sinner. I knew that. And I also understand, understood what Jesus had done for me on, on the cross. You know, I knew without any shadow of a doubt that I wasn't perfect. And that wasn't just because my mum reminded me every day. You know, I genuinely did know that in my heart of hearts. I knew that I needed the Lord Jesus. But it was always about in my time. And I looked to Jesus. I remember that moment. I can remember it vividly now as if I'm still in that moment. I remember looking to him and seeing for the first time and realizing what he had done for me. And I cried out to him. 
and I gave my life to Christ. And you know, I'll be absolutely honest with you. Life has not already be, always been easy. It really hasn't. But it has been full of joy. You know, even in, even in the, the hard times, you know, I've, I've never had to walk through this life on my own. I've always known that Christ is with me. I've always known that, that I'm loved and I'm held. Even when I have felt so desperately lonely, I've felt like I am on my own. And the reality, honestly, the reality of life has only grown sweeter with age. And as I look back this evening, I really want to lean out and commend my Savior to you, who longs to be your Savior too. Honestly, you're young, many of you, with your lives ahead of you, and I, I'll say to you there's some exciting things ahead. It's fantastic life. It is a wonderful, wonderful gift to be alive. What a joy it is. But it's tough. It really is. It's really, really hard. And honestly, I don't want you to go away to university and go away and have to face this life without him. Because one you, once you separate yourself from your homes and your family and your friends and you're out there on your own, the temptations are great. So while you're in this secure space, give your life to Christ, I plead with you. And when I look to Jesus as a boy, would you do the same even tonight. See, John is saying at the heart of the biblical message, at the heart of the history of salvation, is Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, the Word who became flesh, the one who gives life eternal. Look to Him. Don't look to anything else to give you life. Look to Him. Follow Him. Give Him everything because Jesus Christ is central. I came across this old song this week that I used to sing as a boy, and I'm going to finish with this. Not I, but Christ, be honored, loved, exalted. Not I, but Christ, be seen, be known, be heard. Not I, but Christ, in every look and action. Not I, but Christ, in every thought and word. You see, John the Baptist understands this. It's not about me. I'm content, John says, in the providence of God being the foreigner. I find my joy and fullness in what God has made me to be. He's saying here, you know, look to Jesus because he is the Lord. Look to him because he is the Son of God. Look to him because the Father loves him. Look to him because the Spirit indwells him. Look to him because he is the center of it all. Look to him because he is the friend who will never let you down. Amen. Are we tonight someone who has accepted that proposal? Well, I want to say to you, and John wants to say to you, keep entrusting yourself to this bridegroom. Keep loyal to him. Don't look to other lovers, so to speak. The lovers of the world, whatever that is, rest, reputation, relationships, remuneration. But if tonight, this night, you've not done so, you've not turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, you've not accepted his offer, whether you're a young person or whether you're older in years, wherever you are, then I want to urge you, 
along with John the Baptist, along with John the author, along with Jesus himself. Don't reject Christ anymore. Receive this incredible offer that the bridegroom has come to bring. It is life, he says. It is life that we have now, life to the full. Life that goes on and it will always get better and one day we will fully experience, fully know it when we see Jesus face to face. And he will run to us and he will say, welcome home. Amen. Well, as the, uh, the band come up to pray, why don't we just take a few moments just to be quiet, just to reflect a little bit on what we've been thinking about tonight. Where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. He is the answer. There's nowhere else to turn but Christ. Father, we do ask. We do ask that you would speak to us through your word this evening. Lord, we need you. We cry out to you, hear, hear our cries for mercy. And if there is anyone here this evening who, who knows that they're on the brink of reaching out to you, I pray that, that they would be brave enough even to turn to a friend and say, pray with me. Help me over the line in your name. Amen.